for the first time more kids whose parents are descendants of people from Africa, Asia, and Latin America were born in this country than kids who are the descendants of people from Europe. It's going to be that way every year for the next half century. And I wish I could say that everybody was handling it beautifully and we were just moving along, thank you, but we're not. And, you know, every place had their growing pains with this. It's just that the South is having it um, a century later than everybody else. From Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina, this is Sound Effect. Here's your host, Megan Hayes. Ray Suarez is the host of the Al Jazeera America daily program, Inside Story. The former host of NPR's Talk of Nation and PBS's The News Hour, Mr. Suarez recently served as host of Destination Casablanca on HITN, one of the most popular Spanish-language channels in the country. A long-standing member of the Washington Press Corps, he is well-known for his expertise on quintessentially American issues, including politics, demographics, race, and religion. From 2009 to 2013, he covered the global health beat for the News Hour, traveling the world to bring back the news of severe health threats and steady progress against some of the world's most dangerous diseases. Ray Suarez has also released several critically acclaimed books, most recently Latino Americans, The 500-Year Legacy That Shaped a Nation, which was a companion volume to a six-hour PBS series of the same name, and which puts forth that, as a nation, we need to shift our thought paradigm from one that assumes we have always been a nation of European descendants to acknowledging that we are, and I quote, a continent-sized country that has been multicultural from day one. Mr. Suarez is on our campus today as the keynote speaker for the fourth annual UNC Hispanic Latino Forum, which is an event that brings together people from across the 16-campus University of North Carolina system to discuss relevant issues facing our Latino communities and their impact on higher education. Mr. Ray Suarez, welcome to Sound Effect. Great to be here. On the Sound Effect podcast, we have conversations with smart people about things that are going on in our world and how we at Appalachian are affected by them and also how we affect them. And so I'd like to begin by asking you a question about race relations, because on our campus, we continue to have discussions about race and privilege and building a multicultural community that values diversity. Many of these conversations have been taking place through the lens of the National Black Lives Matter movement, which makes a lot of sense for us right now because it's an historical conversation for our very historically homogeneous university in rural North Carolina. And as a state institution, most of our students come from North Carolina. And in North Carolina, the black population is larger than the Latino Hispanic populations. But we know our state's demographic makeup is changing rapidly. We see this happening in Boone. Across our state, North Carolina's rate of Hispanic growth is the sixth fastest in the nation. How do you see this impacting the conversations that we might begin having as a college community in the future? Well, I think for a lot of the country, the anxiety around cultural change that you hear right now in this moment, and certainly in the still young Republican campaign for the White House, comes from the fact that a lot of the country never had an Ellis Island moment. They never had a time when immigrants were really pouring in all at once, changing things around, changing the assumptions, the way the Northeast had to deal with immigration, Florida, the West Coast, for generations. If you look at the states of the old Confederacy, they were the most heavily native-born states of the Union, because for the most part, in the 20th century, when 
Italians and Jews from the Tsarist Empire and Irish were coming into Boston and Baltimore and New York, Chicago. They weren't coming to Huntsville and, and Lumberton and, and Jacksonville and places like that. They just weren't. And so now, now finally, in the 21st century, you're getting, because of the economic dynamism of the South and the creation of jobs that went on in a very healthy way, even as it was flagging in other parts of the country, you know, when you go to places like Dalton, Georgia, the rug capital of the, of the United States, th that small city is now more than half Latino. North Carolina, Virginia, uh, Georgia all have uh, and, and may have close to a million Latino residents by the 2020 census. So this is a new thing, wanting people to put signs that say empuje rather than just push on the back door of the bus. Uh, that's a new thing to be handled here. Press two for Spanish when you're on an 800 number. That's a new thing for here. And I wish I could say that everybody was handling it beautifully and we were just moving along, thank you. But we're not. And, you know, every place had their growing pains with this. It's just that the South is having it um, a century later than everybody else. Can you talk about why it's important that Appalachian and all colleges increase the number of black and brown graduates? Because we want this to be a wealthy country in 2030 and 2040 and 2050. Right now, the college graduation numbers being put up by black and brown young Americans are much lower than the national average. And if they remain much lower than the national average, as the portion of those students grows as a proportion of all students, that's going to be bad for the country and bad for the wealth of the country in the out years. You know, anybody from the majority who's looking out at the future should think about the fact that if they'd like to retire and get their Social Security check deposited in their account once a month, that amount is going to be made up by the taxes of a minority workforce, a minority-majority workforce. In 2010, for the first time, more kids whose parents are descendants of people from Africa, Asia, and Latin America were born in this country than kids who are the descendants of people from Europe. Happened in 2010 for the first time. We crossed that threshold, and it's going to be that way every year for the next half century. So we ought to be thinking about not only how to stretch and accommodate and get used to this new idea of America, but we have to think in very practical terms about who's going to graduate from school, who's going to make the money, who's going to pay the taxes. If my Social Security check is an aggregate of the earnings of all these people, who are they? And are they lunkheads or are they well-educated, ready-to-earn people who are going to make a good living and make a go of it in America? Finally, finally, in 2015, we're all in this together. Everybody has a stake in the success of minority youngsters going forward. As Latino-Hispanic culture continues to shape who America is as a nation— I wonder if I could ask you about what our nation can learn from this culture as a whole. And I recognize I'm asking you to make some really broad generalizations. <laughs> yeah, really. There's no, <laughs> no other way to answer that one. Uh, we should uh, recognize what's 
valuable, as we have with every group that's come here. We've recognized what's valuable about what they bring here and over time discarded what they've brought here that isn't applicable or isn't useful or isn't wanted. That, that isn't different about this new kid on the block who at the same time is the oldest kid on the block since places like St. Augustine, Florida and Santa Fe, New Mexico are much older than Plymouth Rock and Jamestown, Virginia, something we sometimes forget. There are aspects of Hispanic culture which will drop away from Latino families as they're in the country longer. And it'll be fascinating for social scientists to watch this really large group of people, one out of every six Americans, and whether they adopt the norms of the wider society or hold on to the things that they have with them when they come. For instance, Latino families tend to live in multi-generational households more than other Americans. As they're here longer, will they adopt the prevailing wider society model and stop living in multi-generational households? Or will the number of multi-generational households continue to increase as the number of Latino families continues to increase? Nursing homes, when you go to Spanish-speaking neighborhoods in the Southwest, in the Northeast, in the Midwest, uh, they're not chock-a-block with old-age homes because people tend to live with their families until they need hospice care or they go and die in the hospital. Divorce rates are different among new arrivals than they are among Latino families that have been here two and three and four generations. We've seen that with divorce, particularly, um, the numbers start to move toward the American norm rather than remain where they were when immigrant families came. There is, unfortunately, in many Latino families, more of a value put on education for boys rather than girls because that old idea that they will be largely the support of the family and the main breadwinners hasn't died off yet. It will. But more Latino families need to be encouraged to see their girls as every bit as deserving of the kind of investment that they're making in the educational futures of boys. It, you know, this was also true of immigrant families going back a long way. Not only the fear that you would be transformed by getting more education and not be like us anymore, which is a something that you can see in working class literature going back to the 19th century. But the idea that you will grow away from the culture, that you will stop being who you are, you'll forget who you are, this is all deeply embedded in a lot of these communities. It's going away. When you talk to these families, they know, for instance, that learning English and doing well in school are key to getting ahead in the society. They don't, if the father of the household is doing manual labor, when you talk to these families, they don't want their children to do manual labor. They have no shame in it. They are not ashamed that this is what they do, and they're very proud of the fact that they work for their daily bread. But on the other hand, when, when you ask them about their children and their children's chances in the United States, they recognize that education is a big part of it. So there's a delicate dance that's going on on both sides, both the wider society that's getting used to having these people around and the new people themselves deciding kind of a la carte, looking at the menu of options of how to be and deciding what's for them and what's not. Mm-hmm. Interesting that you brought up the topic of family. That's something that I really wanted to talk with you about today um, is this concept of family. You know, at Appalachian, we have this phrase that we call the Appalachian family. 
there are a lot of people that use it very genuinely to describe a positive experience that they had while they were here. You know, we tend to wrap our arms around our students and, and encourage them in many, many ways to be successful. But this is not a positive experience for, for everyone. And you'll hear people say that. We've got, you know, 20,000 faculty and staff and students on our campus right now, over 117,000 alumni. And some feel excluded. They feel like they've not been treated as a family. Um, some feel like the concept of family is this inherently patriarchal, imposing concept and shouldn't be applied to academia. As educators, we're taught to understand the importance of family and community within the Hispanic-Latino value system. And I just wonder if there's something that we at Appalachian can learn from this concept of family that is so inherent and important to Latino-Hispanic culture as we continue to try to build a multicultural community here and as what we you know, kind of struggle with our, our Appalachian family. As that One changes. of the biggest challenges for Latino young adults in finishing a credential a two-year or four-year degree, is that when they get in trouble, when they are off track, uh, when they're in danger of being put on academic probation or that kind of thing, in a lot of colleges, they feel like no one even knows they're in trouble. So they're out in the lake. They're going down for the third time. They're waving their arms, and everybody's standing on the shore and not even aware that they're drowning. And completion rates are terrible for Latino college students. A lot of them start. A lot of them start. And too many of them don't finish. So that concept of family is um, useful because in colleges where they aren't equipped to really keep an eye on students, not in the behavioral sense, but in the, in the sort of academic progress sense, um, a lot of them report afterwards when they talk to social scientists, when they talk to the schools themselves, they'll say something like, well, I felt like when I was leaving or when I didn't enroll for the next semester, no one even knew that I had gone. And that's something you hear from a lot of the kids who now have one, two, two and a half years of college. They have the debt from it, but they get none of the acceleration that having a credential brings, so they get the worst of both worlds. They don't get the push of a degree, but they still have the millstone around their neck of the debt. And it's, uh, unfortunately, it's a widespread story because the start rate for Latino kids coming out of high school is great now. It's much better than it's ever been. And the completion rate is dauntingly low. And that idea that someone knew when I got in trouble, uh, I think it feeds into the, uh, the numbers that are coming out of colleges and universities that now attest to the fact that expensive schools, expensive private schools with higher graduation rates actually know if you're in trouble more than the affordable option that you and your family sat around the living room and running the numbers and you decided you couldn't afford Acme College and you chose Zenith University instead because it was cheaper. And it turns out you end up dropping out of Zenith because of those reasons that I described. You just got lost in the sauce and no one even knew you had disappeared from campus. Right now we have a crisis, really. I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to call it a crisis, where a lot of academically qualified Latino students are pulling their punches. They're not uh, striving to enter the best programs that their grades would get them into. 
They're playing it safe and applying for middle-of-the-deck colleges thinking, I'll be safer here. I'll be better off here. The fact that I went to a bad, overcrowded, under-resourced public school and I have some shortcomings in my, in my preparation won't show here at this safe school and will show here at this highly demanding, highly rigorous school. But the highly rigorous school is going to get you what you need because they want you to finish, because they want those gaudy completion rates that they can put in the U.S. News and World Report standings and and keep their numbers up. Uh, It is a terrible paradox that the safer school, and the one that arguably might be easier for you to complete, is the one you're more likely to drop out from. Wow. Well, you're about to speak to a group of educators who work with college students across our state, but I'd like to ask you, if you would, to speak to our students for a moment. What advice do you have for this current generation of college students as they face the future before them? I tell my kids when I'm in a fit of honesty that I'm glad I'm not starting out now. But that's not meant to bum you out. That's just meant as an observation that this is a tough time to get traction as a young adult and get going on whatever your life holds for you, whatever you're looking to do with yourself and where you want to go. But that doesn't mean it's hopeless, and that doesn't mean it's, it's some awful trial. Life is still wonderful. America's still a great place to get started. And look, uh, you can't pick your times. You can't choose when you were born. You can't pick the times that you're going to live in and the times you're going to make as an adult. So you just got to play with the hand you're dealt. Sometimes it involves bluffing, acting like you've got four aces when you've only got junk in your hand. Sometimes it means postponing some of the milestones that you thought you would hit at certain ages. I wanted to be here at 25 and here at 27 and do this by the time I was 30. All that stuff has to just get tossed aside now because we're in a time in America when all that stuff is being renegotiated, for better or worse. I mean, with us living longer, who says you have to be married by X age if you're going to be alive when you're 90, which... No people in the history of the world ever have been able to assume that there's a very good chance they're going to be alive when they're 90. Today's seniors, 22-year-olds, can assume that. So the way your life rolls out is going to be a whole different matter from what it was from the young men and women in a hurry who were graduating from college 40 and 50 years ago and felt like they really had to get going on these things. Own a house, find a husband, find a wife, have kids. I'm watching my own kids are um, 26, 24, and 16, and their lives are going to be calibrated differently. They can't, they can't believe that I was married at 23. They just, they just think it's crazy and not really even germane to their reality today as, as young adults in America. And that's just one example of many. And, you, and so, yes, it's tough to get going. Yes, it's been disappointing for hundreds of thousands of young adults. It's been tough. But that doesn't mean it's over. That means you just have to tailor your expectations to the times and uh, keep on keeping on. Luckily, they're a really optimistic generation. I hope so. so. (laughs) That helps. Well, Mr. Ray Suarez, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Great Um, to talk to you. 
you know, your presence on our campus is going to be so important to the educators that are here today to listen to you. But I really appreciate you taking this time because what this will allow us to do is spread that presence beyond the time that you're here on our campus so we can revisit what you have to say today and um, learn from that as a community here. And, and your linguistics majors can listen to my Brooklyn accent and <laughs> sort of ponder some of the ins and outs of it and why, why it's so different from the way people talk here. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Today's show is written and produced by Troy Tuttle, Dave Blanks, and me, Megan Hayes. Our sound engineer is Dave Blanks. Our web team is Pete Montaldi and Alex Waterworth. Our theme song was written and performed by Derek Wyckoff of Naked Gods. Our podcast studio is dedicated to Greg Cuddy. Special thanks to Stephen Dubner for the inspiration, advice, and moral support. Sound Effect is a production of the University Communications Team at Appalachian State University in Boone, North Carolina. Thanks for listening. For Sound Effect, I'm Megan Hayes.